Support for this podcast comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to policyholders who focus on keeping their employees safe. More at TexasMutual.com. Speaking to Dwight Hobart, for me, is always a delight. He's the owner of the Liberty Bar in San Antonio. And with Dwight, it's always a bit like listening to jazz. You're going to hear some interesting wordplay and funny combinations of ideas, and you might not see where the twists and turns of his stories are going. And then at the end, it will all come together, and you realize Dwight knew where he was going all along on his West Texas story jazz odyssey. This is No Hill for a Climber from Texas Public Radio. I'm Michael Taylor. People who know the Liberty Bar and know you, Dwight, would say that you have a fondness, I don't know if a, a weakness for old, difficult buildings, but certainly the Liberty Bar was, the original location of Liberty Bar was famous for practically being falling down. It is a quirk, it is a propensity, uh, perhaps even a penchant for old places and old buildings. That was attractive to us. It had character and it had flair and it had some romance. And that's, uh, we've pursued that. We gravitated to, to the old building because of that. I want to talk to you about being a restaurant owner as a business person. I know that banks don't lend to restaurants because restaurants usually fail. But you have, at least on me- one measure, succeeded wildly running this for 35 years. What are the keys to success or what are the keys to failure in the restaurant business? Well... I'm probably the best qualified person to uh, offer some explanation for failure. Uh, (laughs) Tell me more. Tell me more. My career in the restaurant business is is characterized by a, a kind of brief, giddy window of opportunity that allowed for us to succeed for a very short period of time, and all the rest of the time, it's been a slow-motion car wreck, sometimes not so slow motion. (laughs) But but really, that's that's true. And and the the place has been a success in some one sense, perhaps, the the term success d'esteem. My feeling is it, it, it has realized my some of my ambitions. I mean, I really did want for the place to make money. I hoped that it would make money. I still do. And all evidence to the contrary, I expect that it will. But uh, the place is still open. It's open because I've kept it open. And it's open because it did succeed. It, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, an absolute, it wasn't a flop. It made enough money so that, that I was able to afford to put the additional money that was required to keep it going into the business. So that's what happened, you know. I, I was going to say, at one time about 10 years ago, as I was trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up and what constituted success in my life, I actually noticed through our friendship of observing you, and I asked you, Liberty Bar, is this the crowning achievement of your life? Is this the thing that you feel proudest of? And at the time you told me, yes, it is. I'm really proud of the Liberty Bar. Well, that was true. I was telling the truth. But again, like most everything else, you know, there's, a, there's more to it than that. There's more to the answer. I am proud of the Liberty Bar. It looks the way I'd hoped it would look. It does what I had hoped it would do. It serves 
the kind of food that I hope it would serve. It was it was good food. It tasted good. It looked good. It had uh, a quality of authenticity, and it it attracted an interesting clientele. It, it it brought in people who had something to offer themselves, and they weren't simply coming here to get a hamburger. They were coming here to have a conversation. And it has books. I am a bookish person. Cookbooks and other books, just a wide variety of, of books. And, and we have a, a set of shelves in one corner of the bar room that's filled with some of those books. And that appeals to me, that, that it matters. Well, from my perspective, Dwight, the combination of the books on the shelf and the interesting artists and students and business people that you bring together is makes Liberty Bar a success. It makes it unique in the city and it makes it my favorite, my favorite restaurant to go to. It's a smashing success and it, it feels like the vision of an individual person who chose a path for their restaurant. I didn't start out dreaming of owning a restaurant and, and to be, although I enjoy it immensely, and I obviously I've, I've given, I've dedicated myself to it for, for a long time. It isn't really my ambition. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not what I started out to do. I, hopefully, possibly, in some sense, these conversations are perhaps a deeper realization of what my personal fantasies have been than simply the restaurant itself. Well, you said to me once, Dwight, restaurants tend to be an emotional calculus function of the owner's personal identity fantasy. That's so, true. That's so true. what's your goal? <laughs> what's your fantasy? <laughs> Possibly it could be to, to own and have owned a restaurant such as the Liberty Bar for low these many years and then have a conversation with Michael Taylor about it. It was lovely to be told that having a conversation with me about his restaurant was Dwight's definition of success. But as we were speaking in the midst of a long COVID stretch during which his restaurant was closed, I wondered how frustrating it was for his business to be empty. His answer surprised me. Well, you know, it would be easy to say it's frustrating, but honestly, it's not all that frustrating. In order to have a restaurant, by definition, you really have to have customers. I believe it, it. It is a logical necessity that you have customers. If you if you propose to to open a tavern or a restaurant, uh, and we have had. However, I've always enjoyed the building when it was empty, and and it hadn't been empty very often because we when we started out, we just said, okay, we're going for broke. We're going to be open seven days a week. And that's what we did for the, for the better, way, way, the better part of 35 years. We were open seven days a week, four weeks out of the month, so many weeks out of the year. And we had customers. Even when, when the customers didn't generate enough cash to, to offset the expense, we had customers. And from day one, I'd have to say really that there was a, a certain sense of success. People came and they say, hey, this is good. We like it. And, and they were doing what I wanted them to do. They were talking and eating and drinking. And, and it, it was all the way that, that worked. But uh, on the few days that we were closed, I was often in the building. It was such a pleasure 
to be in this beautiful, empty space with the sense of all the people who had been there and all the people who might be there. And, but to have it to myself, I, it, was a, it was a very selfish pleasure, but I've enjoyed that. So over the last year, uh, I've certainly had a, an opportunity to indulge in my enjoyment of the building, but uh, I've enjoyed about as much of that as I can stand. <laughs> my mind goes to a joke you made about the hospitality industry, which is that the cooks hate the servers, the servers hate the cooks, and they all disdain management, and customers are a necessary evil. That's a, entirely the case. Oh, it sounds like you enjoy the party of the customers coming together, and then you enjoy the silence before and after the customers are there. I, I really enjoyed being on the, on the business, the working side of the bar. I liked being able to go back in the kitchen. I liked being able to get behind the scenes. The sets were in front of me. The flats were in front of me, and I was back there where the, the stagehands were hauling up the scenery, and that has an appeal to it. I don't know. Maybe it's a sense of control. You know, you, you get out there with the customers, and it's, a, it's kind of a free-for-all. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I discuss some of Dwight's ventures in West Texas, where he grew up playing the commodities market, and his experiences as a rancher with his long-term business partner, Doyle Smith. Last summer, Texas Mutual sent $330 million to resilient companies who work hard at working safe. It's their 23rd consecutive year of distributing dividends and helping businesses invest in a bright future. Since 1999, they've paid out more than $3.4 billion to employers who share their commitment to building a stronger, safer Texas. Learn more about how Texas Mutual is changing the way workers' comp works for you at texasmutual.com slash rewarding. I think we first met. Our first conversation was as a result of me picking up a Financial Times that you had left lying around at the Liberty Bar, which I've now come to understand was your form of dog whistling to folks in your restaurant to figure out which ones were interested in financial markets. I responded to the dog whistle, was reading the Financial Times. I think you came over and sat down and we began a conversation about the commodities business, which I've never forgotten, but I'm interested, I was interested then and I'm interested now in how you describe the commodities business, your experience with it, and well, maybe we'll say your jaundiced view of how it all works. Well, I think you're entirely correct in how that all started, but I, I remember, it seems to me you were sitting in the coffee bar I had a great affection for the, the the old pink paper stock of the Financial Times, and same, yeah, same. And you had picked up a copy of the Financial Times, and I was I was eyeing you from behind the coffee bar, and I thought, well, he he must be able to read because there's not enough pictures to keep his interest that long. And I I wandered over, and I think I inquired as to your interest, and we we did begin to discuss. Not only the Financial Times, but some financial matters. And I don't pretend to be knowledgeable about those kinds of things. I, but I do like I like books. I like papers. I like magazines. And I and I was very very happy to see someone pick up one of the papers because almost nobody ever did. They they just came in, gathered dust, and then got thrown out. But we. We had the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and The Economist. It's a great, small selection of information. You've described the 
ranching business uh, essentially like a commodities business in which you can make a lot of money and you can lose a lot of money in a short period of time, but it's a not as much an emotional business or an aesthetic business or a people-pleasing business, but should best well, be approached it, from a maybe a commodity perspective. I've been in, I, I grew up on a ranch. My, my father was a rancher and his father before him. But uh, for instance, take commodities. When I first started trying to, to buy cattle and keep them alive and help them gain weight and then sell them, I, ha- I did business with a Canadian named McMorty, John McMorty. And John McMorty was a, a hot-headed, narrow-minded, overbearing son of a bitch. But he was pretty good at what he did. And the day he bought my first cattle that I sold, he was bragging about how much money he was making in the commodities. And now he had he'd come across this guy up in Nebraska who really understood the commodity market. And I thought, well, that just sounds interesting as hell, you know. So I I got hold of that man, and, and I sent him some money. And before I had time to catch my breath, he'd already lost half of it. And I thought, well, hell, you know, if that's all he's going to do is lose my money, I can do that <laughs> as well as he can. He, he can't lose my money any better than I. So I started trading on my own account. And it was a an amazing education. You know, I I had a hard time in the beginning, I had a hard time grasping what it meant to buy long and sell short and all of that. Well, believe me, it all came into focus. And I understood it in ways that I didn't even want to understand. And 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 I went on from there. And then, then there I had the classic experience of most people who do that kind of stuff. You know, you you can have a an incredible success really quickly, and then you can have an incredible failure just as quickly, if not more so. I'm reminded of a cliche about trading markets like that, which is that the very worst thing that can happen to you is to have early success. Oh, yeah. I I hope you didn't have too much early success. I had both. I, I had early success and early failure. And then, and this was about sometime around 1970, I leased from the Reuters company a teletype machine. And for the better part of of a year or two, my day would begin at 7 in the morning with the sound of of the bells on the teletype machine dinging, and then it would start typing away, and it would go all day long until until about 8 o'clock in the evening. And I traded commodities, and I, I didn't try to make all the money in the world. I just tried to pay attention and, and, and do it. And I, I discovered that I could actually make some money at it if I kept my, my ambition in check. If you're willing to go against the grain, and if you're willing to take small positions, if you're willing to take a small loss, you can make a little, little money. But I, the other thing I discovered, trading the commodities no matter how successful you were the the ups were never as as high as the downs were low and and you never felt good enough to offset how badly you felt <laughs> even yeah. when things were going okay <laughs> there are two nobel prize winning psychiatrists who won the the nobel prize in economics on that concept which is that losses 
have a much more powerful psychological effect on our minds than gains. And they the, do. They do. That's a, that's a classic of behavioral finance. We suffer much more pain from a $100 loss than the joy that we feel with a $100 gain and so on to any, to any scale. Yeah, it's really, I, I agree. And I, you can read it, you can hear it, but as you know, you've traded, you've done that. Uh, you learn it. I'm going to say something here. Let's be realistic. We bought a farm. We started buying farmland back in 1972. There were some, a couple of guys and guys who were in the steer business, the way I was and the way they were, suffered greatly. We suffered, but we didn't suffer as much as they did. They got caught up there on the high plains, and they they lost, I don't know, 100 or 200 steers, and it it knocked them for a loop. Well, at the same time, the year of 1971 was just about the driest year on record in the panhandle. It rained about four inches. So they'd had a terrible year for farming and for grazing. And on top of that, now they had this blizzard and the loss that came with it. By spring, they went broke. They sold their land. Doyle was aware of this, but he didn't have the money to make the down payment. It, it, took, it was going to take a down payment of, of $10,000. I didn't have the money either, but he came to me and he said, listen, I think this can be done. Do you want to help me do it? Well, just about that same time, a pipeline company named Kansas, Nebraska, approached me in Hemp Hill County to build a pipeline five miles across the Hobart Ranch. And they were going to pay $11,000. So they paid that $11,000, and I took 10 of it, which didn't belong to me. It belonged to my mother and father. Part of it belonged to me. I owned a little piece of the property, but they owned the rest of it. I borrowed, I took what I had and I borrowed the rest from my mother and father who were still alive. And I went in with Doyle and we bought that square mile of farmland and we paid $117 an acre. It, it, was, it was about, I don't know what, $75,000, something like that. And we borrowed the money, the most of it, the bulk of it from the federal land bank. But we had to make a $10,000 down payment. We paid for that land partly by farming, partly. Now, there's an interesting qualification here. We farmed it, and we've just farmed it. It didn't. There was no romance to it. It was just flat farmland. It was like conceptual land. It was just one big flat square mile of land. And we tried to do it as as inexpensively as possible. And we had a few pretty good years. We made some wheat crops, and we were paying on this note. And then the United States Department of Agriculture came along and said, fellas, we are going to try to improve the ecology. Mm -hmm. We're going to try to improve the, the character and condition of the land out there on the high plains. And there's a lot of that farmland that, that really, it shouldn't even be farmed. And you're farming it, among many others. And we're going to pay you. We're going to pay you about $30 an acre a year not to farm that land. Well, this was getting up close to $20,000. And they call it the, the CRP, the Crop Reserve Program or something like that. We enrolled in the CRP. And for about 10 years, we got paid 
on that tract of land, we got paid to do nothing. I've always wondered to what extent the agricultural industry is built upon being paid to do nothing. <laughs> there, it, it isn't all built on being paid to do nothing. But in this particular instance, in this case, and we were doing plenty of stuff in other ways, but to be honest about it, and Smith will be honest about it, he'll, this guy is extremely conservative. He's a lifelong Republican. His father was a Republican. And he hates the idea of welfare. But what can you call it? You know, it, it's welfare for rich people. We had 4,000 steers scattered about the countryside, and we're getting paid $30 an acre on this one place to do nothing. And over a period of about 10 years, you know, that was about $200,000. We paid for it with, with the help of the CRP. I guess you'd call that realism. It's not exactly capitalism. And I know that the, based on the voting records of the folks who live around there, they don't want to call it socialism. They don't want to call it socialism, but when you, if you, if you push them to the, to the point, they'll, as they say, belly up to the lick log and shell down the corn. What else can you call it? It is what it is. Frankly, I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. During that time, we planted grass out there, and it, it attracted uh, birds. There were quail. There were pheasant. It was a great deal. It was a great place. And then at a certain point, they even allowed us to go in and graze it, you know? So we were, we were sort of double both ways. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Why not? And then, and then we got to tell ourselves, I always like to throw in that word ecology. I, we were improving the, the ecology. <laughs> I've got a final question, Dwight, which is considering yourself as a businessman, a rancher, a commodities trader, a restaurateur, a rug merchant, which we haven't even discussed, do you consider yourself a success in business? Well, success, I'm proud of the degree to which Doyle Smith and I played the game by the rules and made it work. And I, I do consider, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a, an example of, of, of a, a great money-making person in the cattle business or any other business, but I haven't gone broke, I haven't gone to jail, and I've held it together. And, I, and I've, I've increased the holdings of the property, and I think I have the respect of my peers. Dwight, you have my highest respect. I may not be able to consider myself your peer, but highest respect for me. You are my, my better. Not at all. I always laugh and I always learn something talking to you, and I'm really grateful that you took the time to tell me some of your story as a businessman, as a, as a gentleman, as a person of honor. And uh, I'm honored that you took the time and really appreciate the conversation. All right, me too. No Hill for a Climber is produced by Ryan Kyloth with editing help from Ben Henry and Dan Katz. If you like this episode, share it with a friend. I'm Michael Taylor. Talk to you next time.